How would you describe yourself? Metal Fu fusion. Fusion metal. Or metal fusion, depending on yeah. you know, your preference. If there was someone that I knew didn't listen to a lot of the bands that I listened to, I'd say, you know, it's it's kind of like Foo Fighters, kind of like Weezer, kind of like maybe Sunny Day Real Estate, if I had to really stretch it. It's more of like, kind of like an experimental metal jazz. Progressive metal. Yeah. We're just a rock band. Talking Records Podcast. Talking Records Podcast. Talking Records Podcast. We talk about our favorite records. Talking Records Podcast. We're so glad you tuned in. Thank you all for listening. You showed up to the right place. Jen and his friends dive deep and analyze the records we have grown to love. We'll tell you how we found the band. Then give you a track by track breakdown of all the songs. So grab your favorite beverage and pull up a seat. Today we'll look at another record in its entirety. Hi everyone, my name is Jed and this is Talking Records, a podcast devoted to connecting with friends over records we love. I'd like to welcome Midtown and Census Fail guitarist Heath Saracino to the show. How are you, man? I'm doing good. It's good to hear from you again, Jed. Awesome. Yeah, it's good to have you back on the podcast proper this time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Last time uh, we, we got to speak, but I don't think uh, any of the audio was usable. So it seems like you have a really good system now. Yeah, I was in the emerging stages of learning how to do a podcast. And I was like, I can I can talk to him and listen to his answers, but I don't know how to record him. <laughs> <laughs> so we've come a long way and the uh, the pandemic has certainly helped. Yeah, I've made a lot of technical uh, and technological advances over here as well. I finally got a, a USB interface so I can record guitar into GarageBand, which I oh, did awesome. not have for years. I had like nothing. So, um, you know, I think we're all being a little bit more creative with all this downtime. Yeah, there's certainly more time available to, to learn new things. <laughs> yeah. So aside from uh, GarageBand recording, what have you been up to, man? Uh, the past couple months, uh, I've been doing this project with my friend Dave. Uh, Dave lives in Austin. And he's a really, really good old friend of mine. I met him over 20 years ago when Midtown first started touring. And when the, uh, the pandemic hit and we all started to quarantine at home, he uh, posted a video online of himself singing along to, uh, I think it was a song from The Wedding Singer. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I love that song. I was like, wow, man, you still have some set of pipes. And he was like, actually, I, I'm really bored. Do you want to do some covers? Like yeah. we used to do them like years ago. That's um, awesome. Yeah. So like we would at Midtown shows, Dave would come out and we would just like leave and go hang out on the street and play like, you know, Saves the Day or Alkaline Trail songs in the back of the club. Just kill time. Uh, so we started throwing together a list of songs that, that we both liked. And uh, I would send him some guitar and he would send me back some vocals. And we'd throw it up on Instagram and YouTube and Facebook and just, you know, be a little bit creative. So I've been doing that. And I've also been doing this project with my friend Christian Lesperance, who's been putting together, um, I guess you could consider it a comp in, in the in the new school way. He has a bunch of old uh, New Jersey musicians such as myself. And, you know, back, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a very strong local independent punk scene in New Jersey. We put on shows. I'm, I'm sure you had it up by you too, where, you know, kids would rent out a hall. They would get three yeah. or four or six local bands to play. And you'd get anywhere between 100 and 500 kids to come out to the show. Yep. New Jersey had such a strong scene that back in the day, on any given Friday, there would be two, three to four shows to choose from. Wow. Um, so there were just like a ton of bands. And 
you know, over the years, a bunch of us have kept in touch. But what Chris did is he, you know, he kind of got back into playing guitar through this as well. And he started recording cover songs of uh, Joystick, who was like a New Jersey band. LWL, who was a New Jersey band. Mm-hmm. Said Alpha Six was a New Jersey band. He would just like remember those songs and kind of plug them into GarageBand and start start playing them and recording them. But he didn't he didn't want to sing them, so he reached out to a couple of us to start singing on them. And it's just it's grown exponentially. So he started releasing them every Monday for I think the past past eight weeks or so. I think he's got like another fourteen songs uh, just ready to release. So he's going to keep putting those out. And uh, our friend Joe Polito putting them up on on his SoundCloud account. Uh, that's the NJPP account, where he archives mm-hmm. all this music from New Jersey bands from back in the day. You know, if you had a band, you played two shows, your flyer is up there. <laughs> you're on there. <laughs> your demo is on there, right? Like, wow. it, he's got everything. It's incredible. So I, I've actually scrolled through there because, I, you know, I, I check in on the This Was The Scene podcast now and again when I see some of those old Jersey bands that I'm familiar with. And yeah. they talk a lot about you know, that, that page. And I think it's amazing that, uh, that guy has archived all that stuff. Yeah. It's incredible. Uh, you know, I think, I think most of us had that music back in the day, but you leave your parents' house, you move around, things get lost in the move, basement floods mm-hmm. and you lose it. Somehow <laughs> Joe has either kept all of his original stuff or just been taking it from people here and there over the years. And yeah. he's just amassed this wow. incredible collection. Totally awesome. And so you uh, you did a song on there. I think you you uh, did vocals for like a big wig song or something. Yeah, I did. I did basically the uh, the whole song. I mean, Chris sent me a, a blueprint of it and uh, I wanted to, you know, reprogram the drums. I did the drums in GarageBand. I did the guitars in GarageBand and uh, I borrowed a bass actually from the bass player of big wig at the time. My friend John Castaldo. Oh, really? Yeah, he let me his bass. <laughs> Uh, I put I put a feeler out on Facebook. I was like, "Hey, does anybody have a bass that I can borrow for a day?" And John was like, <laughs> "Yeah, you can borrow mine." I'm like, "Oh man, that's just too perfect." Of course, yeah, yeah. So uh, wow. yeah, I borrowed John's bass and did that. The guy who mixed it, uh, Ryan Selleck, um, he lives around the block from me. In some strange coincidence, uh, he's like my neighbor two 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 uh, blocks down. He's got a whole studio, so I borrowed his. Uh, he he lent me a really nice microphone. I recorded the vocals in the basement one night after my son went to sleep. So I'm down there and I'm singing and I come upstairs and my, my seven year old daughter is just like cracking up. Yeah. And she's like, she's like, what are you singing about? She's like, you're going to go, you're going to go piss. You're going to go piss. I'm like, Oh yeah. I can't believe you heard that. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> yeah. So she, uh, she got a lot of, a lot out of that. Um, I bet. <laughs> yeah. But that was a lot of fun. I mean, it, it really started to take shape when, um, when Ryan got a hold of it, he just he made it sound really great. That's awesome. And yeah, I heard it. It does sound great. Um, and I'm thrilled that you're you're still involved in music, man. That's great to hear. It's so much fun. I, I really haven't done anything in like 10, almost 11 years. I mean, I left Census Fail in August of 2009. And mm-hmm. besides the Midtown shows, I haven't really played much guitar at all. Was it uh, hard to pick back up again or did it just did it just come naturally back to you? You know, it was a bit of a challenge because my brain is telling me, you know, what to do, but my yeah. hands just wouldn't do it. And I, <laughs> I didn't have the calluses anymore on my hands, so right. I could only play for a little bit of time. And and then I would get frustrated that I couldn't do what I wanted to do. But I think after a couple of weeks, just getting more comfortable playing acoustic guitar, the thing with Dave really, really helped me out because I was, mm. I was like training my brain to play what I was hearing again. Because um, I... 
playing, you know, playing guitar, I, I always had a pretty good ear. You know, I would hear something on the radio or listen to a record and I would just sit down with the guitar and it would just come out. Um, it would just like get translated and just, I would just know how to play it. So that was still kind of there. Um, but I just couldn't actually play it anymore. I, I knew what I needed to do. I just, I just couldn't do it. So yeah, <laughs> I think I'm past that hurdle. Make sure you check out Talking Records on the net. You can visit our website at TalkingRecordsPodcast.com. From there, you'll find episodes and merch. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Talking Records Podcast. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. You can drop us an email at TalkingRecords at Outlook.com. These are all fantastic ways for us to connect with you over great music. Apple users, every positive review helps us become a little more relevant. If you have nice things to say or anything to say at all, please leave us a review and, you know, we'll give you a high five when this pandemic is over. You know, as you know, I'm a huge fan of Midtown, and I had a blast chatting with you in preparation for the Talking Records episode on Living Well is the Best Revenge. And I knew I had to get you back on here. So thanks for coming back. Oh, thanks for the invite. This is, this is a pleasure. Yeah, this is going to be awesome. Today, Heath and I will be talking about Jimmy Eat World's 1999 album, Clarity. The band's third album was released on February 23rd, 1999 by Capitol Records. The album was recorded at two studios, Sound City Studios in Van Nuys, California, and Clear Lake Audio in North Hollywood, California. According to singer-guitarist Jim Adkins on the band's website, we had good luck doing drums for Static at Sound City, so we decided to try it again. The tracks were mixed at one-on-one studios in Los Angeles, California. Both the band and Mark Trombino produced the album, with Trombino also mixing the record. According to Atkins, the atmosphere of the Clarity Sessions was very encouraging for experimentation. Any idea was explored for some element to make the song better. I would think if a song was totally finished, and then one of the guys in the band, or Mark, would bring up an idea that really closed the deal. Atkins explained on the band's website, We had a decent recording budget available. Our manager was gracious enough to let us all stay at a house he used as offices. He managed iced tea. We slept on a floor with Trespass, Surviving the Game, and New Jack Hustler posters above our sleeping bag spots. I never had a second thought about sleeping on the floor for over a month. It didn't matter because we were making a record. We sunk our money into whatever we thought could provide an opportunity for creativity, mainly studio time and instrument rentals. And Heath, according to Adkins on the website, they brought in Susie Katyama, who helped write and arrange strings for some of the Clarity songs. Wow, the strings on this record sound great. Yeah, maybe something you don't notice at the first couple of listens, but once you get into it, you hear those string arrangements, and it's pretty neat. Yeah, she did a great job. After completing the drums at Sound City, the band moved over to Clear Lake Audio. According to Adkins, a few days we rented just about every percussion instrument and toy we could get. We had vibes, bells, tubular bells, temple blocks, cowbells, whatever. Yes, multiple cowbells with different pitches in case the first few weren't exactly quenching the fever. They were wheeling in timpani when we realized we had taken it maybe a little too far. It was fun having all that stuff lying around. With the album complete, Capitol still didn't have a release date set. The band's A&R person, Craig Aronson, had an idea to help keep the ball rolling so the band would have something to take on tour. He pitched the idea of releasing an EP with a couple songs from the record and some outtakes and extra songs. 
The idea was offered to Vinny from Less Than Jake, who also ran Fueled by Ramen Records. Aronson had signed Less Than Jake to Capitol. K-Rock in LA immediately added the song Lucky Denver Mint to their playlist, and the song was submitted to be in the Drew Barrymore movie Never Been Kissed. And just like that, Capitol was ready with a release date for the album. So how did you so how did you get into Jimmy World? How did you get into this record? That's a good question. I think I think my brother Mike, who's my younger brother, I think he bought this record first. And uh, I had I had known of Jimmy World. Uh, I think I had heard Lucky Denver Mint. I worked in a in a video store at the time, so I'd seen uh, the movie Never Been Kissed, which ah. had Lucky Denver Mint and yep. Seventeen. Uh, with the original lyrics in the chorus of she's only she's only 17 mm-hmm. um so like I, I was aware of who jimmy world was but not until i stole that cd from mike did i really start understanding uh you know what they could do oh man i've listened to this record probably more than any other record of my collection oh yeah <laughs> yeah this thing was was there when we first uh when i first started really playing shows and it was always the first record that would go on on a long van ride. It's just, it's just always been there. <clears throat> I think I got this record a couple months after it came out. Uh, but I, I, I had friends who had seen them play before clarity came out. There were, there was a famous show with uh, Jimmy world and the get up kids at the Wayne skate, Wayne skaters world in Wayne, I think it was. And there's like a video of that entire show up probably also on the NJPP archives somewhere. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I think I think Joe has a YouTube channel as well, where where it's on there. Right. Uh, and they played a show at the drive-in in uh, at the Melody Bar in New Brunswick that a bunch of my friends from Rutgers went to. Uh, but I, I missed I missed that ground floor of Jimmy World, and uh, I didn't actually see them play until until after Bleed American came out. But I was listening to them. You know, they were in constant rotation. Of, you know, before that. Yeah. So what is it about Clarity that really grabbed your attention? So the, the thing that I, I loved about this record was that it was not, um, it wasn't standard. It was, you know, it wasn't just a bunch of power chords and the same drum beat and, you know, an octave lead on top of it, which is something that, uh, that I, you know, it's kind of my bread and butter, but it was, it was, you know, a lot of different textures and dynamics and the instrumentation was kind of all over the place. And, uh, it seemed like these guys, were just very smart about what they were doing. And they had a different, they were coming at this, this style of music from a different angle um, and looking at different ways that they could, uh, they could expand and broaden it. Even the way the two guitars played together. Like if you listen to the guitar parts and you listen to the way they're playing, these are two guys who know how to play guitar. You know, they have studied, they have practiced and you can tell they went through a metal phase at some point, you know, <laughs> either in middle school or high school. There's yeah. that one really telling like chugga chugga in, uh, it's, uh, man, it's in one of the early songs on the record. Dun, 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 yeah. Dun, I know exactly dun, what you're dun, talking dun, about. Yeah. And it's like, Oh, okay. Well these guys, they've listened to Metallica. They're just choosing not to play that way. Um, <laughs> and the way that they played off of each other was just, um, I don't know. It was, it was, it was so well thought out. Yeah, I agree. Like it, it, it feels very thoughtful. Like they spent just a lot of time coming up with the songs and then trying to come up with the parts. Like not just throwing down like basic chords, you know. Like they just really thought through all the parts. 
Yeah, they would bring melody into everything. A lot of experimenting. The first time I heard uh, Jimmy Eat World was actually at Skate Fest in Worcester, Mass. <laughs> oh, yeah. But actually not because they were playing. Um, it was because Bleed American had just come out and the sound guy was pumping it through the PA between bands. And, you know, as I stood there waiting for Face to Face to come on stage, I was just standing there and I was struck by this music that I was kind of hearing in the background. Like everyone was milling around and talking and uh, it was, you know, it was heavy, but melodic and and then like all of a sudden it would be like sweet and soft in the next moment mm-hmm. <laughs> and i remember i asked my friend uh and he told me that it was jimmy at world and so I, I went out and i purchased bleed american and you know, i was listening to it but then when a friend burned me a copy of clarity onto a cdr and handed that to me i remember uh she said if you like that album you're gonna love this one and handed me clarity and oh man <laughs> i remember just loving clarity to the point where as good as bleed american was like i just kind of pushed it off to the side it was like i don't even need this anymore <laughs> yeah uh, it almost seems like bleed american is the lead up to clarity but it's uh it's, yeah it's the other way around it does feel like that it would be reversed because clarity just feels like like a journey like it just feels like the songs were incredibly crafted and interesting and the sound was really good. I just really got into this this record. Yeah, yeah, it, it's the kind of record that will do that to you. You'll, you'll you'll listen to it, and then you'll listen to it again, and then you'll keep hearing new things every every time you put it in. Oh yeah, definitely. Even like just recently, going through the record in preparation for this, I was like, oh wow, I never even really noticed that you know that guitar line or that added you know that added percussion section. So it was it was cool to like kind of dive back in. Right, right. Like, is that a tambourine? Or yeah. is, that, like, is that a synth or is that a violin? I mean, I don't know. Some of the things are blended so so well together that it's it's more of a texture. Like, you, you get the texture of the instrument without getting, like, maybe it's it's timbre. And it sounds natural, which is important, too, because I know they used a lot of loops and they used a lot of gear in the studio to create these songs, but... Amazingly, it still feels very natural. It still feels really organic. You know what I mean? Yeah, it still feels like a band is playing those songs. Exactly. All right. So my next question, Heath, is I want to know, did this record, did Clarity or Jimmy Eat World or any of this stuff play a role in your work with Midtown? Oh, it played a huge role. Um, yeah. You know, we hired Mark Trombino to, to produce our first two records because mm-hmm. of Clarity, you know, because, because of it. Oh, nice. Yeah. I mean, not like we... I don't think we went into working with him thinking that we could make the next clarity because uh, yeah. we knew that that was not, that's really not what we were doing. But um, mm-hmm. he, he just, he brought that band to such a, such a high level with this record. Mm-hmm. Uh, we thought that it, you know, some of that magic is going to rub off onto us too. I, you know, we were, we were really happy with, with the drum tones that he got on this record. We loved the guitar tones. We loved all the harmonies and, how he was able to balance all of that. And those were aspects of, of our music that, that we wanted to promote as well. And do you know anything about him or just his work? Yeah. Well, going into it, we knew, we, you know, we knew these records. We knew he did Dude Ranch by Blink-182, which was a mm-hmm. favorite record of mine. We knew he was a badass drummer. He played in Drive Like Jehu. Yeah. Um, so we were just really stoked that he, he was interested in working with us. We really couldn't believe it. We, we thought that because uh, we were asked if we wanted to, to produce our first record. And we we're like, well, Mark Trombino, 
get, get Mark yeah. Trombino to produce our record. We're like, yeah, there's no way this is ever going to happen. But, uh, <laughs> but he said he was interested. We kind of, uh, wow. we kind of fooled him. I think. I think he thought yeah. he was coming in to make like a gritty, dirty punk record in like ten uh, days, and we got there, and uh, we needed a, l- a little bit more work. Because I guess like, um, I mean, I don't know what, what he was like in the studio, but I guess he can be, you know, really creative and really thoughtful. And you know, when we were talking about living well, you were ta- you were saying how he had lots of ideas and he would, you know, encourage you guys to try different things. And so not only are you getting, you know, this, this great producer, engineer, but you're getting like another songwriter, another, you know, person to help craft the music. Yeah, exactly. And that, I think, I think that's, that's when we learned the, uh, what a producer is supposed to do. You know, we, we never knew that they were, that they come in as kind of another member of the band with all these suggestions of, uh, different ways that you could play the songs and you know we we thought you come into the studio with a song and all they do is hit record and make sure that you right. don't mess up your guitar part and you know you sing <laughs> on key uh, but it, there's a lot more to it and uh you, you know we learned that on the first record but the second record living well we uh we found out how deep that could go so we did a lot sure. more pre-production with him on that one that's awesome all right heath you ready to break this thing down track by track yeah i got bunch of notes here man i don't know if any of them are gonna make sense but uh we'll see (laughs) we'll see all right song number one table for glasses This was one of a few songs briefly considered for a side project singer-guitarist Jim Adkins was working on for a side project of Quiet Songs. According to the band's website, it never got past a few jams, so all the songs went up for clarity consideration. Table was one of the first in that batch. I was listening to a lot of low at the time, which you can tell from the extended cymbal-snare drum pattern and held-out vocals toward the end, according to singer Jim Adkins. Um, so really what I love about this song is how it builds from basically nothing with just those, the ride hits to a full blown, huge, powerful open chorus, those long held out harmonies. And then the counterpoint vocals to come in. It's just, it's, it's very satisfying. And I think it's, it's it's an incredible and powerful way to open a record. It's like one big crescendo. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It just, it keeps building and then it just, explodes you don't hear the kick drum until like the second verse Mm -hmm. and that way it kind of reminds me of um this weezer song from from the blue album only in dreams yes yeah it's very similar to that long build yeah just kind of swells up you know yeah exactly just it just keeps going it keeps going according to jim on the band's website recording this song taught us that if you aren't doing a lot it doesn't take a lot to get a big dynamic impact. The lone cello is a good example of that. So right on point to what you were saying, they kind of use that to build this giant conclusion. Yeah, between the cello and the bells that are in there, it's you get a really, uh, really wide soundscape. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And apparently uh, Trombino was very helpful in sort of shaping these songs, especially songs like this one, where he would ask the band to add counterpoint vocals uh, in the ending crescendo section, that not asking me for anything part at the end. Oh, yeah. I love that part. Which, yeah, which I think is such a great part of the song. <laughs> so it's cool that um, that kind of thing was added as they were recording it, you know? Yeah, it, it's almost mathematical the way that, that this song builds. 
and from from there from that the, the held harmony with the, mm-hmm. the harmonized counterpoint over it it's like you, you can't get any bigger than that and it just has to end so i remember the first time i heard this song Heath, i was like what the hell was that like i remember i actually kind of skip back to, to hear it again just because it was so powerful like it just starts like you said starts from almost nothing mm-hmm. and just quietly builds to this big ending it's just such a cool song yeah with that little droney sound that comes in and it's just hitting that one note and everything kind of builds around it it just fills yeah. it in nicely I, I think it's probably there in the background the whole song and just yeah, things yeah. Coming around it they do that a lot on this record they'll have like one theme that just sits there and mm-hmm. you hear it sometimes, and other times it floats in the background. We'll we'll get to that on other songs, I'm sure. Yeah, definitely. So simply put, this song is about Jim Atkins' experience at a performance art show. He sings, not asking of me anything, saying nothing about what it means without anybody telling me what I should feel. Lead my skeptic sight. And I guess the story goes, this woman was just like cleaning a floor with her dress and and Jim couldn't really make any sense of like what she was doing. And then she would walk over to like a candlelit table and pick the dirt off the dress and just place it into glasses. <laughs> and that was the art. And that was the art. All piece. right. Yeah. And so I guess what Atkins is saying in the song is about how there's no correct way to interpret art. I mean, <laughs> here's yeah. this seemingly random and crazy thing that this woman is doing. And like, what does it what does it mean like how do you make sense out of this right how does this make you feel because some things are just left uh open open to interpretation you know however people want to how to read it mm-hmm. all right the next song is lucky denver mint So this was, uh, I guess, the big single. It was promoted heavily with a video, which actually features clips of the Never Been Kissed movie. You said this is this is the movie that uh, you first heard, Jimmy World. Yeah, I watched this movie at work, uh, probably probably like like every shift in the video store. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, it was great. That was a great job. Uh, it was either <laughs> Never Been Kissed or Empire Records. Uh, they were just on constantly. You know, we awesome. couldn't we couldn't watch, really watch Clerks in the store, or else that would nah. be on too. <laughs> yeah, you had to keep it uh, G or PG rated. Yeah, PG or under. Made a mistake putting Serial Mom on one time, and uh, ooh, yeah, it looks it looks like such a lighthearted movie, but it's really not. So yeah, <laughs> in trouble for that one. According to Zach on the band's website, "Lucky Denver Mint" was one of the first songs we came up with that sounded distinctly like us. It was a rock song, but not a typical kind of rock song for 1998. The contrast of the swing and the rhythm and the straightness of the guitars that's found in this track was something we've always been attracted to. This track was also the first time we ever tried recording two different parts on the drum set. That's so that's such a cool technique. Um, and I think they did it a couple times in this record too, but this is the best. I think, I think the best use of it, this is an iconic drum part. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you, any show that you went to, you know, 1999 to 2003, when the drummer was setting up his drums and checking his snare and hi-hat, he would go into this this beat. You'd hear it everywhere. It was this, and then there was a braid song that everyone would play to check their drums. And it yeah. was just, it was such a cool beat. And you hear it kind of, you know, go in and out over, over and under the drums. 
there's a guitar part in this song that's like that too. It's just that that that's used yeah. as kind of like a like a pedal point. I think it's like a D sus two chord that's just like always there in the background, just ringing, yeah, just just ringing, and they're just they're strumming on it the whole time, and it cuts out at the bridge, and that's there's like a clear divide where that guitar part stops, mm-hmm. um, and the drums change; they get a little, a little heavier there. Yeah. Um, so you know you could you could hear them playing with the dynamics and the textures in the song. It's just such a great song. I'm not too sure what this song is about. My my interpretation is that he's wishing for bigger or better things. The line "A dollar underwater keeps on dreaming for me" seems to me to suggest maybe a wish being made by tossing a coin into a fountain. Mm-hmm. The title is a reference to the Denver Mint, which is a branch of the United States Mint. Uh, the mint, obviously, being you know where they make coins. Uh, they've been doing it there since the early 1900s. So, I don't know, perhaps it's a song about wishes, dreams, striving for something better. I, I couldn't really get f- too far beyond that with this with this song. Yeah, I couldn't either. It, al- it always seemed just about, you know, making a wish and, and having some hope. Sure. I, just, I, I like the thing at the end of the song where, you know, I think I think there were a lot of, a lot of parts of, of this record when they were recording that maybe Tom and Jim and Rick would leave the studio and it would just be mark and zach and they'd be like what cool thing can we do the drums yeah. and they were just like you know kind like of everyone's away yeah everyone's away let's have some fun with this and uh and i think what they did with the with the end of this song was very cool um uh, you, yeah as you're listening to it at the end when it's just really just the drums and the ring out the drums start kind of separating you mm. know and they kind of start getting chopped up as it repeats and you hear, you really hear the separation between the pieces. Things are panned left and right and they're going all yeah, over the place. It's almost like distorted a little bit. Yeah. And then it just ends abruptly. And goes into your new aesthetic, which just starts with that driving guitar, which is so cool. Yeah. It's like, it's kind of, kind of shocking when it starts. You're not really expecting it. Lowering the standards in a process selective the formulas to thin. Similar to Table for Glasses, this song, Your New Aesthetic, holds a similar kind of tension during the first half of the song and then sort of opens up to a much larger, wider sound uh, in the second half, I feel like. Yeah, absolutely. Um, This is another example of of how you can tell that that these guys know what they're doing and they know their their music and they, they know how to create a mood with the with the chords they're choosing um you know it's starting off with like a a b minor seven i guess it would be a dyad it's just like the two notes together and Mm -hmm. the seventh moves down and it moves around and then there are some open chords going on but it always keeps this really dark tone for just uh for just the one guitar Mm -hmm. Um, it's just it's just really great technique it's almost almost dissonant but um Man, I don't know. It just it just creates such a cool vibe. Yeah, they did a lot of cool stuff with the different chords they were playing. I don't know if they used much drop D on this record, but um, I know on Bleed American they used a little bit of drop D. Just a lot of cool things going on. Yeah, I, th- I think this song is drop D too. At least I always played it in drop D. When uh, <laughs> it's a lot easier. It is. It is. Yeah, we we used this uh, this guitar riff when in uh, in Senses Fail when we would play a song called Calling All Cars Live. Yeah, um, I would start playing this part, and it would segue right into 
into our song. It was just such oh, cool. a cool guitar part. It was just so much fun to play. I, I like to throw it in there. Nice. <laughs> According to drummer Zach, this song went through a lot of changes in the writing process. It started out as a very mellow track with the same lyrical theme, but then evolved into a more aggressive, dark rock song. And according to Atkins on the same uh, band website, the rock version you hear on Clarity was called Skeleton for a while because the loud guitar parts in between the verses reminded us of horror film music. It had completely different lyrics. I started to lay down the vocals and decided they could be better. So I scrapped the whole thing and adapted the lyrics from the mellow version. So that's kind of a neat way that the song sort of morphed and changed over time a little bit yeah it is cool and and you can hear that mellow version on the uh on the fueled by ramen ep it's a cool version of that song totally uh totally different vibe um but, uh, you know, I think there's some like some finger picking in the intro. Mm -hmm. um, very cool. Very, very mellow. Well, you had sent me earlier today the uh, the link to the Clarity demos, and I had a blast listening to those. Some really interesting things happening in those demo versions. Oh, yeah. What I like to hear on those uh, on those demos is the things that stayed the same. You know, yeah. the, when they come in with such a clear idea, I didn't mean to make that pun, but when they come in with like yeah. such, such a solid idea that they just, there's, there's nothing they can do to make it better. Yeah. It, it doesn't change at all. They um, got it. Yeah. They just, they just nailed it. They just came in and, and, and had it. And I think this, you know, this song that they, they got it right on, uh, on clarity, this, this dark, dirty version of it. Yeah. This version is cool. I like this one a lot. I believe the song is about how music is pushed by labels and radio stations. He sings, we're lowering the standard in a process selective. The formula is too thin, but it takes more than one person. So everyone jump on. And so, you know, stations decide what gets played and what doesn't. And sure, you know, things become popular as more people you know, request music. But so much of what gets played, I feel at least, Heath, is like force fed to us. You know, it's like in our face all the time it's in commercials it's in movies it's on the radio and that feels to me like just a huge promotional push yeah i, I hear you and and i think that this this band for for a band to come off come out and tell you to turn off the radio um, <laughs> it's a very strong statement you know it's about yeah. individuality like get out there and do your own thing yeah find out who you are yeah they're, they're almost pointing out that it's like a fleeting thing he sings better sing now while you can mm-hmm because before long, everyone, you know, is going to move on to, you know, the next thing. Yeah. Kind of uh, funny that a few years later, they would have such a monster radio hit. Yeah, that thing. That was everywhere. It's still everywhere. Yeah. So, you go to a baseball game and you hear the middle. <laughs> yeah, you go, you go grocery shopping and, oh, there it is. Yeah. But at least it's a good song, you know, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. has that yeah. staying power. Let's move on to Believe in What You Want. Well, nothing can be The message in this song is to keep in sight what is truly important and not get caught up in things that don't really matter. The song, I guess, was inspired by a show the band played with Duran Duran. 
where they got caught up in all the paparazzi, you know, hoopla, taking pictures and surrounding them, probably shouting out questions uh, because they were with Duran Duran. And Jim actually recalls on the band's website that it was like really crazy and thinking, none of you care who we are. (laughs) It's just a song about believing in the things that you care about and not getting caught up in all the superficial stuff that comes along. Put in the work, hang your flyers all over town and keep sight of what makes you care. So often people get caught up in these fleeting moments of fame and, or, or popularity. They lose sight of you know, why they started it in the first place. Jim sings, what you ignore is priceless to me. Wow. Yeah. Do the work. <laughs> do the work. That's what it's about, you know. And mm-hmm. so the, the jagged guitars in this verse, uh, they just segue right into this lush open chorus with those huge harmonies. Yeah. Um, there's nothing better than that payoff where... There's all this tension building, and then it's all released with that with that huge, huge harmony, the spinning and spinning. It's almost like it, they use contrast as like another element, like another instrument. Absolutely, they they do that a lot. You know, they do that in uh in this song with when they go into the back and forth vocals in the bridge, mm-hmm. and then there's this guitar line in the chorus where the chorus is just just the chords, just the power chords, right? But there's this high descending arpeggio mm-hmm. that, like, it starts off sounding like like it's a it's a well put together line, and then at the end of it, it's just this this odd unison note, right? Mm-hmm. Where he's like he's hitting the open string with the fifth fret on the on the B, and he's kind of wiggling it a little bit. So mm-hmm. he's giving you a little bit of tension there on those two notes that should be the same exact thing. They're kind of rubbing on each other, and they're kind of it's kind of grating, but it's a really cool technique. I mean, it's yeah. I I call it the, the jawbreaker chord. Uh, <laughs> Perfect. I, like jawbreaker Perfect. does that a lot. Like you know, yeah. really high on the net. Those two. I guess it would it would be like a like a flat second. You know, they do something like that in in that song, and that's just a really cool technique that that they use all over the place. They use that a lot on Fleet American too. Yeah, it kind of became. Like a signature sound. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. The open note with the with the kind of wobbly unison note underneath it. Next song is A Sunday. Dude, this is such a sweet sounding song. I I love the rhythm that drives forward, but is like punctuated by what is it like a xylophone? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I don't know what that is. It could be a xylophone. It could be um, what's that? What's that instrument that's like a xylophone but it's metal? Yeah, I know what you're talking about, but I I can't think of what it's called. Oh, my percussionist friends will hate me for that. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'll get some some flack, but. It's such a cool thing. I mean, it's a bit of a sad song. You know, the line, because when the ride's done, the hopes that you have carried, they fall out from your hands back to the ground. But uh, it just seems to be like the cornerstone of the song, you know, (laughs) Sunday being the end of the week or the end of that reflective time when everything you've done for that block of time is sort of over. It's done, you know. Uh, by driving, he means running his mind back over the events that have occurred. Uh, he knows he has to let go of these hopes. At least that's my interpretation of it. But 
It's such a great, I, I love this song. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Me too. This one is, uh, the, the intro, whatever that instrument is, uh, the, the pattern always kind of reminded <laughs> me of a Radiohead song, like a more mm. optimistic version of no surprises. Oh yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with yeah. that song, but it's, it's kind of got yeah, a similar yeah, pattern no on the guitar. Um, mm-hmm. you know, some, something that I thought was funny, you know, I sent you those, uh, those demos earlier. Yeah. Originally, I don't even know if it's original or not. I don't know when they, when they made those demos, but on those demos, the bridge is the chorus and the chorus yeah. is the bridge. Well, I almost feel like there was two versions on that demo. Like I heard an instrumental version, then I heard uh, the one with the lyrics. Oh, cool. I didn't hear the instrumental one. But you're right. They kind of they kind of switched some parts around. Yeah. According to Zach, the, the key to the song was making the choruses more soft and intimate compared to the verses, which is funny because usually your verses uh, are the quieter, typically. And then the choruses are the big, you know, loud... Uh, you know, Nirvana did that a lot. You know, they had those verses where it was like maybe just bass and drums and, uh-huh. you know, Kurt moaning over the top. And then the chorus would come in, guitars, you know, drums would be crashing. Yeah. The the Nirvana thing with the, the dynamics of the, the low verse and the exploding chorus. Apparently, they took a lot of that from the Pixies. That was one of the Pixies hallmarks, too. Oh, yeah, definitely. The quiet loud. Yeah, quiet loud, quiet loud. According to Zach, it wasn't until we made that adjustment that the song really came together nicely. A Sunday is still one of our more successful attempts at capturing a song on a recording. It just really translated well on tape. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, I, I love what they did with this one. There's a lot of those, I guess, the, the dyads that I was mentioning mentioning before. Uh, the, mm-hmm. Those two note chords and some octaves. There's always like a slight dissonant note somewhere in there, whether it's in like a, like a passing chord in between two chords, but they like to throw in, you know, I don't know if it's a, a sus two or something. They, mm-hmm. they do love the sus two chord. That's all over the record, yeah. but, but they <laughs> like that as a passing chord too. Yeah. I think this song has vocoder on it too. Oh, okay. And the live with that, with that line. It's a very, it's, they use it not so much in the, in the share way. Um, they just kind of give a little bit of extra, uh, extra flatness to the vocal line to make it stand yeah. out. It's a really cool, uh, really cool effect. Um, the drum sound on this song is is a, a little bit roomier too. Oh yeah, I was gonna comment that I love the drum sound on this song. I remember reading something at Adkins that said like that's why they call it uh, the, that's why they call the big room the expensive room or something. <laughs> <laughs> they recorded the drums for this one. Very true, very true. I wonder if that's where they recorded the cello because. Uh, there's a lot of cello in this song. There's a cello solo. Uh, and yeah. It, it sounds so good. There's some B3 organ in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's everything. And then and then it ends with that big chorus, the loud yeah. version of the soft chorus we've been hearing the whole time. And so, Heath, are you familiar with Rebirth? I, I read that they, they were sort of tinkering a lot with the program Rebirth on this record, and specifically maybe this song. I think, uh, was Rebirth like a... A precursor to Reason, which was like a, like a yeah, programming. Yep. yep. Yeah, I, I I didn't get into uh, into drum programming at that time. Um, I didn't really mm-hmm. know how to use a computer yet, but uh, <laughs> but they they did a lot with the primitive technology. I, are the yeah. bells were the bells done on Rebirth? Is that what they were saying? I'm not exactly sure what what portions were done on Rebirth. I just know that. Uh, the band mentioned doing a lot of tinkering with Rebirth uh, on this record. Yeah, when you're stuck in a studio with a laptop 
and you're not you're not playing you need something to occupy your time and it's either gonna be yeah. you know playing call of duty sure this is pre uh, iphones where people could play like iphone games <laughs> yeah exactly there's no iphone so you're just gonna stim out on something and uh yeah you know i i've done that with garage band in the past you know i've oh, that's cool stuck in one place and okay well let me just program the guitar solo to, to hotel california to kill some time yeah uh, but they, they use it for something productive yeah and, uh, and incredible actually went on to the album yeah that's cool all right let's move on to crush This song crashes in and then takes off. This is definitely one of the faster songs on the record. Oh, yeah. It starts with a kick right to the teeth. Right after the line, turn and smile nice. The guitar can be heard jamming on that D chord. Mm. It almost sounds like they drove the treble way up. I think you were actually talking about something like this earlier when you were talking about their metal influences. Yeah, they just this is drive that treble up, and it's got this really tinny sound. It's really cool. Yeah, they just punched that guitar in cranked it all up and said play, yep. play disposable heroes real quick yeah <laughs> it's awesome. awesome i love the way the guitar sounds yeah i always love that part i always wait for it like i know it's coming i'm like here it is and it's like you know you know when your record's got like highlight parts that people like look forward to that you've done something you've done something great yeah there are a lot of those moments on this record but this is this was the first one that i when i was listening to this the first time I heard that and I was like, "Oh, okay, all right, I'm 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 going to be into this band." Yeah, and, and based on the demos that we heard, this one did not change really at all. Um, no, it's it's almost exactly the same. Yeah, I like hearing demos, and you know, I liked hearing these demos because, like you were saying, you kind of hear what the band was coming in with. Plus, I like to hear the songs in their most raw form. I mean, the you know, the vocals are kind of buried. You know, it sounds kind of rough, but. You really get a sense of like what the song, like where the song came from. Yeah, you, you can almost put yourself in the in the headspace of the band and you know hear what they were listening to at the time. Mm-hmm. It's quite simply a song about having a crush, sitting with someone on a snowy night and not being able to tell them how you really feel. My lungs are so numb from holding back. He wants to say something, but I guess uh, he just can't get it out. I mean, because once you say something, it's kind of hard to. Take it back, you know. It's out there. <laughs> Things can never go back to the way they were once once you uh, once you tell her how you feel. Once the door's open, it, it's open. Twelve twenty three ninety five. I'm trying to remember Christmas of 95. <laughs> Probably got like a Super Nintendo game or something. Uh, so this day, this day was two days after my 17th birthday. Uh, oh, yeah. And uh, I remember this is a very sad day because um, mm. I had taken my driver's license test the day after a snowstorm. Oh. Right before Christmas break. And... Uh, I failed my driving test the first time. Oh, no. So I had to go through Christmas break thinking that I was going to be driving everywhere, and I had no license. So no wheels. 12 wow. was probably not a really great day for me. And here it is, Immortalizing Song. Yeah. Unfortunately, they're not they're not singing about your, 
your failed license uh, test. <laughs> no, no, thankfully. Where did you blow it, man? The three K, the three point turn. I failed four things. I yeah, I made like a seven point turn. I didn't look in my mirror <laughs> the right way. I turned. The guy failed oh, me no. for turning the wheel wrong. So I did it in. My, I took the test in my dad's pickup truck that was stick shift. Oh yeah. You made things harder for yourself. Man. I know. I I really blew it, but um, <laughs> yeah. What are you gonna do? Parking the tank out front. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this song was inspired by video game music. The band put this one together using drum machines and keyboards. Oh, cool. According to Adkins, nothing we tried sounded as cool as the demo. We busted out the crappy digital tape recorder and played back the demo, recording it into the tape for the Clarity Sessions. Great timing, too, because when we got back that night from dinner, we found out that Mark's laptop and our crappy digital tape machines we used to demo had been stolen. Concerning the demo, Adkins explained, Zach brought over a Dr. Rhythm or something to my house when we were demoing ideas for other songs. We were recording, and Zach just started pushing buttons. When the pattern Zach program changed in the intro, it is totally random. We incorporated it and made the music around it. The drone guitar that sounds low res is me shuttling the guitar tracks backwards and recording it on a different tape, then dumping it back in. It was a one in a million chance that it would line up exactly with the random pattern change in the intro. <laughs> this is like, this is like Beatles, uh, Sergeant Pepper level stuff. Yeah, this is like such lo- low tech <laughs> for such a high tech band. Yeah, it's crazy. I guess it was meant to be. So that's guitar in the intro. That that thing that sounds broken. I don't, I'm trying to like, I, I honestly spent time listening to it and trying to figure out what was what. I mean, things are backwards. Things are scrambled. I mean, I don't know if anybody knows. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Aside from the band, maybe some people in the band don't even know, but it's super cool. I mean, yeah, it's a really neat, uh, it's a neat effect. Yeah, it's great. It sounds like um, the, the kind of like a bit crusher, like it, like it's gone to a very low resolution. I guess that I guess that's exactly what it did. What he what happened because he's just dumping it from tape to tape to tape and, and losing yeah. it each time. So yeah, it sounds so cool. The quality kind of degrades a bit. Yeah, yeah. It's like when you would make uh, make a mixtape for someone back in the day, and they would make a tape of that, and they would t- make a tape. Of that. Yeah, it's, just, it's never <laughs> as good. Yeah, I think it was songs like this that really interested me in this album. Like, it was just really uh, an enjoyable listen. There's so much going on. Yeah, it's different. There, and you know, you have that weird, messed up guitar going on with the, with the uh, the kind of chilled out drum loop, and then you have these two guitars that play very simple lines that intersect with each other at a point, and then they go apart, and then they intersect again, and then they're in unison, and then they're not, and then they're hitting a strange harmony together. I think that that's one of the things that Jimmy Eat World does so well. Tom and Jim they arrange their guitar parts to complement each other. And it doesn't matter really who's playing what, because what they're playing forms this, this new third tone. And in this song, it, it creates like the, the, the backbone of the song. Yeah, totally. Yeah. That's awesome. A song of regret, maybe connected to the previous song crush. I don't know. He's maybe now he's regretting not saying anything. <laughs> it's got like that repetitive line where he kind of repeats. I didn't know what to say. Yeah, there's really not much to it lyrically, but it's a pretty neat song. Yeah, I, I never I never skip past that song. I feel like it's a really nice breather from the mm-hmm. song before and oh, the yeah. song after it, too. Yeah. And the 
the keyboard. Uh, I think that's the one that they said was inspired by uh, Final Fantasy or something. Oh, really? <laughs> awesome. I bet they were playing a lot of Final Fantasy uh, when they recorded this record. Yeah, it was a big game back then. I, I had a friend who uh, actually he was my my manager at the video store at the time. I'm talking about Easy Video a lot. Gary Howell, yeah. Ralph Beavers, how are you guys doing? Yeah. Um, so Ralph got a part in uh, in the movie Dogma. Oh, really? <clears throat> yeah, the Kevin Smith movie. Ralph, who mm-hmm. was my manager, became Kevin Smith's stand-in. Uh, oh, wow. Movie. So he, they, you know, they let him come out to, to Pittsburgh. I don't know if they, they paid him much, but put him up in a hotel, and he got to hang out on set all the time. And That's one of awesome. the few things he brought to Pittsburgh with him was uh, a video game system so he could play Final Fantasy. Nice. <laughs> Can't be without it. Yeah. All right, let's get into 10. According to Atkins, we decided to use different drum setups for each section like we approached Denver. The loop would play for the whole song, and Zach would come in playing the other kit for the chorus and bridge sections. Engineer Nick Raskulinitz showed the band how to create drum loops with a stretch of tape, which is pretty cool because I, I love the drum sound on this song. So knowing it was built in such a way in the studio is really interesting to me. Yeah, and in order to build a drum loop like that, you need a really solid drummer because yeah. you know, you're, <laughs> I imagine. you're taking one, you know, four to six second uh, space of, of drum beat and mm-hmm. you're just continuing that over and over and over again. And if there's a yeah. little deviation in there somewhere, you're going to hear it every way. time. Yeah. Wow. It's pretty cool. I, <laughs> I wonder how how frustrating or maybe how easy it was for, for them to pull that off. Yeah. I mean, Zach's a super solid drummer, so... And uh, this one also just kind of cuts off at the end. <laughs> Get the drum loops and piano lines, and then all of a sudden the song just boop cuts off. Yeah, that's right. They introduce a bunch of drums at the end. They they do like it sounds like some backwards drums. There's like a backwards mm. tom. There's a couple other backwards drum accents in there, and the drum kits kind of like weave in and out of each other as the sections change. But at the end of it, there there's that new introduction, and then and that's it. Yeah. Then off to the next one. Off to just watch the fireworks. So at seven minutes, this is actually not the longest song on the album. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 it's not. During pre-production, Mark Trombino had the idea to try the song more mid-tempo and driving. The song had started out with a much slower, almost ballady approach. Yeah, I'd love to hear that. I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if there's a demo of that available, but I would like to hear how that sounds. Yeah, that'd be cool. Here it's evolution, you know? Yeah. So as someone who has worked with Trombino Heath, what, what's his process like for getting his ideas across? Does he kind of wait for you guys to, to ask questions or does he jump right in with, hey, I think this song could really use dot, dot, dot? Mm, uh, I think it depends on the idea and the amount of changes that happen prior to that idea. Mm-hmm. You know, some some days he, he would come in and they would just be like, you know, he had an idea overnight and come in and say, hey, we got to try this right away. Try this. This is, mm-hmm. is going to be awesome. This is how I hear it in my head. And other things are an evolution where, 
you know, you think you hear it some way, but then when you attempt it, it doesn't sound the way that you thought it did. And now you have to, you have to try something else. Um, right. I, I think some of that is just trial and error and, mm-hmm. uh, and other, other stuff is just going with your gut. Yeah. And you got to really trust him uh, if he's coming up with all these things. <laughs> I imagine some people could be like, uh, where are we going with this? Like what's happening? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What is this idea? What are we trying to do here? <laughs> right. But we were, we were such fans of his work and, and of him that, you yeah. know, anything that he, that he wanted to do, we would try it. It was easy to trust him. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. In this song, it's got that sweet section at three minutes and 20 seconds or so where the strings just come in. Um, and I think that sounds really awesome. I love that part. Uh, yeah, there's kind of like an in- instrumental interlude in there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost like uh, you mentioned the longest song on the record. I think that this is kind of a teaser to that. You know, yeah. they're kind of saying yeah. like, you know, look at what we can do with this section here. Yeah. We're going to expand it a little bit. We're going to build a base. <laughs> just you wait. Yeah. Yeah. Just, no, just wait. You don't, you have no idea what you're in for. Yeah. <laughs> Something interesting about this song uh, with the bass, it sounds almost like Rick is playing either like flat wound strings or he's palm muting the whole time. constant And it's, it, yeah. it's not open. He's not playing hard, but he, he might be palm muting it. He's got something resting on him. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a guitar doubling that too. But that, that's, you know, that's just building, building texture. That's really cool. Yeah. I never really noticed the guitar. That's, that's neat. And like a few songs on the record, by the end of the song, they really just open it up and, you know, the strings and the instrumentation really driving the song. The song builds up yeah. before releasing for that last minute or so. Uh, it's a pretty incredible song. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then as you're listening to it, it's like you're watching it. And then at the end, there are the fireworks. It's just, yeah, yeah. That, it's just it gets so big at the end. All right. For me, this is heaven. So this is the song using all the rented percussion. <laughs> the song was built around lots of rhythmic parts, uh, which were just going on. I guess drummer Zach and Trebino began playing around with all these trays of like hand percussion instruments and different drums and stuff. <laughs> and according to Adkins on the band's website, I could be wrong, but this may be the only Jimmy Eat World song with a triangle. <laughs> That's the first line of this song, I think, uh really solidifies its place uh, in history uh, mm. as maybe the most emo first line of a song. Ever. <laughs> um, yeah. This was, this was so many people's uh, away messages you know, on their aim profiles back in the day. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> what was the line again? I'm trying to find it. The first star I see may not be a star. Oh, right, right. <laughs> awesome. Awesome line. I was also thinking about the line, if I don't let myself be happy now, then when, if not now. <laughs> yeah, if not now, when, yeah. Oh, my God. Also, can you still feel the butterflies? The butterflies, oh, yeah. <laughs> so many great lines in this song. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, man. It's like candy. There's so much going yeah. on here. <laughs> it's kind of cool, though, like being so in love with someone and still feeling excited and nervous around them. It's a pretty powerful feeling. Yeah. The, the instrumentation for this song is really cool. You were mentioning all the percussion before. Um, yeah. When it comes in, when when the band comes in after the after the 
I guess they would call that the intro, the first star I see. The rhythm and the counter rhythms are yeah. crazy. Like everyone is doing a different rhythm. There's like uh, a lot of syncopation going on between the kick drum and the and the mm-hmm. bass guitar. And then at some point they sing over that, which is which is crazy. Yeah, it almost sounds like it would be too cluttered, too confusing, but it, it's not. It, it works great. <laughs> right. They just kind of drop it right on like uh, just like the topping on a Sunday. You know, I always like to point out places in music where I was influenced to write something with my own band. Uh, we had a song on our, our last album that we recorded where I was totally influenced by that swirling dual guitar part. I think it's like about the two minute, maybe two minute and 30 second mark or so. Yeah, where it's the, the two acoustic guitars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love that part. And uh, I was definitely kind of influenced by that. Of course, in our song, it's it's way sped up, but it's it's basically the same thing. <laughs> Yeah. I always thought that was like a really cool part. The way the way they introduce that is cool is very cool with the the two acoustic guitars, and then when when it comes in full band, it's the piano playing that part. Yeah, and the yeah. guitars are kind of playing this U two inspired like little droney octave, and it's just holding mm-hmm. out over the rest of it. That's really cool. And the piano kind of ends the song almost as if you know Bruce Hornsby was in the band. <laughs> All right, let's take a look at Blister. This song is interesting because it's the only track on the album that Tom handles lead vocals for. On their previous album, Static Prevails, the songs are, I, I felt were almost kind of 50% Jim, 50% Tom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had, a, he had a bigger hand in that, I think. I guess as uh, Jim Adkins began writing more, he just wanted to sing them. And I've also, I've, I think I've read that Tom just wanted to focus more on playing the guitar. Yeah, I definitely understand that from Tom's perspective. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you don't have to worry. You know, these guys toured all the time. And when, yeah. you're, when you're singing in a band, you know... Um, he, there's always that thing in the back of the back of your head. Is my voice going to go out? Am I going to be able to do this for another 15 days or however long? Yeah. If you're just playing guitar, all you have to worry about is like staying sober enough to play guitar. Yeah. So, <laughs> it's less stressful for sure. I would say this is probably my favorite chorus on that, on the record. Mm, okay. Why is that? I don't know. There's some, it's, it just like kind of plants this, this image in my head of being mm. like, the last person, you know, in this post-apocalyptic landscape. It reminds me of the the movie, actually the book, The Stand, in some way. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's in any way based on that or or not, but Hmm. um, it just... Yeah, when the world caves in, when the world caves in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What you're going to do? Yeah. There's a character in The Stand who, I guess he was referred to as the walking dude. Yeah. Um, And also, Tom mentions Pit of Fire, twice in this song which is mm. such a badass lyric yeah love that that's cool well, I, I like where you're going with the stand connection now i'm thinking of, like the dark tower and stuff yeah, yeah. <laughs> there, there's so much cool guitar stuff going on on the song um yeah the intro is just that that dissonant riff that ends with that g major seven chord um, and they yeah it's a faster rocking tune oh yeah Oh yeah, and this is also in drop D, and they use my favorite drop D chord in the song, which is a G sus two flat five, mm. um, which is uh, 
you know, it's it, got his ring to it. Yeah, it does. It does. It gives you a, just like a little bit of tension right before the resolution. Now that I'm thinking about it, you're right. This this is definitely one of the catchier, more melodic songs. I mean, I was thinking about it. This is one of the ones I tend to sing along with the most, probably. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's... Maybe it's right in my wheelhouse or something vocally, but yeah, I, I tend to sing sing along with this one a lot. It's so good that by the end of the song, even Jim is singing along. Yeah, the dual vocal parts at the end. Yeah, yeah. he joins at the last chorus. Yeah, that's a cool part. I always liked like dual vocal lines. Yeah, yeah me too. <laughs> uh, it all started with the Beatles for me. Yeah. Yep. But, uh, sometimes three vocal lines. Sometimes three. Sometimes four. Sometimes they look Sometimes four. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Next song, Clarity. According to Adkins, Clarity seemed like a good title track. It was a period for the band when things were coming together. We felt like we were starting to sound like our own band instead of like our record collections. It felt like we had set the bar higher for ourselves. In this song, Heath, I love the wailing guitar lines in the chorus that just explode out of the verses. I think it's a song about that point in the relationship when you know the person isn't being straight with you anymore. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe it's time to start the conversations that maybe lead to the end of the relationship. He sings, say what I know you'll say and say it through your teeth. Oof. He's waiting for something better to happen, but it's it's just not it's just not going to happen. Yeah. And he knows he wants out. And, you know, kind of like the previous song, it's a pretty straightforward, you know, rocker. Um, it's got the big guitars. And uh, I guess for this one, I when I used to play along, I would do it in open E. So you would tune your guitar to open E to play along with this. Yeah, yeah. I've never played in that tuning. I think you're right. I think they did this one in open E. I think I read that somewhere. It's cool how playing in different tunings can influence your writing. Well, it just opens up like what, what's available. Yeah. Sound-wise and stuff. Yeah, the, the guitars and the chorus on this one are... I think that's my favorite part of the song is how, you know, they're both playing almost the same thing, but one of them plays like a that static high note and the other one kind of moves around the note this creates a lot of tension They're They're so good at that. Yeah. I think that this is probably the most standard straight up verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus out song on the record. Yeah. You know, they didn't really stray too far from this song, but I, I think sometimes you, you go where the song takes you and it seemed like this was just, you know, we're going to come in, we're going to make this statement not happy and we're going to get out and you know interesting that it's the title track and, and you know the, the quote from jim about you know kind of finding their own sound whereas i think a lot of the other songs on this record sort of speak more to a unique you know jimmy world experimental sound yeah i would say so they definitely experimented more on other songs than this one this is four guys in a room cranking up the guitars blowing you out yeah all right, so Heath, my, my vinyl comes with two discs, and the entire side D is devoted to the final song on the proper album, and then two, two sort of B-sides. So, Goodbye, Sky Harbor.
<laughs> this song clocks in at a whopping 16 minutes and 13 seconds. Oh, man, it's a big one. <laughs> it is a big one. The first three minutes uh, feature what I guess constitutes as a song. Well, the whole thing's a song, but I mean, like, you know, you got this this melody in the song. And then after that, the song just turns into this looping, crazy collage of, like, vocal patterns, mm-hmm. organs. There's, like, a sped-up and slow-down drum part. <laughs> it's freaking crazy. It's nuts. It's nuts. This is this is maybe the most emo song on the album, front to back. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's got that kind of stuttered guitar line that sounds like it's in a different time signature, but it kind of yeah. ends okay kind of vocals that just kind of float over everything. Um, and then the chorus, everything drops out except for this mid-rangey organ, some small yeah. drums, a sparse tambourine, and that harmony with the, the radio-like EQ. It's It's got a very cool vibe. This song is just all about the the journey, you know? Like, they're just totally they're taking you somewhere, and uh, it sounds like it's going to be kind of a normal song. But the fun really starts at around two fifteen. Yeah, you know, with that soft acoustic bridge. Mm. I, I think you know, from two fifteen, it goes to the acoustic bridge. You're kind of like starting to to take off an airplane. And by two fifty one, you're off the ground, and that and that guitar lead is introduced, right? Yeah, and that goes for the next thirteen minutes, and it's there in the same in the same manner as it is the whole, basically the whole song until the until the crazy uh, drums enter. Until like that drum and bass part. <laughs> oh yeah, that part's so great. There's a part in here where, and I don't know exactly where it is, but that guitar line kind of gets turned around on itself. Mm. Uh, it, it's it's insane. Um, yeah, how do they, like, how do they do that? Is that just like, do you think it's just like off time or do you think it's like they looped it back? Or like, I'm trying to like kind of figure out what that guitar line's doing. I think they threw a counterpoint guitar in there at some point mm-hmm. and they played together and then the original one dropped out and huh. then it would come back in and then it would drop out. It seems like every two minutes there's a new introduction. Right? <laughs> they'll throw something yeah. in there. It's like a wave. Yeah. Yeah. They'll throw like, like, like five and a half minutes. Now you have these soft vocal accents, right? Mm-hmm. And they're adding this like trance-like texture, and then there's like a, a higher guitar part, but but that gets established for a while. That goes is that loop for like two minutes, and then two minutes later you start noticing there's something else coming in. You're like, oh, what is that? Is that okay? That's organ, and then you start noticing maybe the drums are a little bit more reverby like a minute later, <laughs> and then there's this like lead guitar part that that like kind of gets messed up and and it's not being played the way that you thought. It should be played yeah. anymore, um, and then you start hearing <laughs> it's just crazy. vocals. It's kind of like, do you do any cooking? A little bit, yeah. Have you ever made risotto? I have not made risotto. I have not made risotto either, but I've watched a lot of cooking shows, and I, nice. I've heard that the thing with risotto is you you add a little bit of, I don't know, if I guess chicken stock or cream, but a little bit at a time, and you move mm. it around, you let it get established, you don't overwhelm anything, and then you throw a little bit more in. Nice. Let it meld with everything, and I think <laughs> that's what they did with this. With the end of this song, is they made this yeah. beautiful risotto. I could totally see that now. <laughs> and I'm going to go back to something you said earlier. You were talking about like an airplane taking off. I guess rumor has it 
uh, Adkins wrote it on a plane in Arizona, hence the name Sky Harbor. Uh, that might just be internet foolery, but um, I believe it. I believe it. I believe it from that that one line. You are smaller, getting smaller. Yeah, yeah. Taking off everyone below you is turning into ants. Um, mm-hmm. I read this, the lyrics were inspired by uh, a prayer for Owen Meany. Yeah, the John Ir- Irving uh, novel. Yeah, I guess there's some like some lines that are directly from that book. Oh, okay. The like I'm but one small instrument line. I guess there's more. Yeah, I've I've actually never read that book, but <laughs> I haven't either. <laughs> I did read that it came from. It's on your list. Yeah. It's on your bedside uh, pile. It's in my audible queue somewhere. There you go. <laughs> awesome. I used to love to lay in bed at night and just listen to this song as I was falling asleep. I just like put it in my in my you know my headphones, um, and just listen to it and just lay there with my eyes closed. Oh. Uh, of course, I would wake up in the last few minutes when it would suddenly turn into a drum and bass song. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, that that drum fill is like such a such a drum nerd um, fill, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I can, yep. I can just see them in the studio when they when they put that in, just laughing, you know. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. The people have made it this far. We'll throw this at them. Yeah, we'll put this drum core fill in here for, <laughs> for anyone who ever marched in marching band. Uh, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Sounds great. It's no wonder that Jimmy Eat World exploded onto the radio with the pop heavy The Middle, a song you can still probably hear at baseball games and in supermarkets. Lifted from the hard rocking, but at times soft and moody, lead American record, it propelled the band into stardom for at least a little while. Why do I mention this record? Well, like many people, it was my gateway into the band. When I was handed Clarity, I could see that Jimmy Eat World was more than just a catchy pop rock band who had been tagged with the emo title. In Clarity, I discovered a superb collection of melodic and well-crafted songs. Some songs crafted right in the studio through experimentation. It's a multi-layered record that requires many listens to mine everything out of it. It just seemed vastly superior to the big radio-friendly record that followed. I have nothing against Bleed American. It's one of the best-sounding records production-wise, but Clarity from a song crafting point of view, was just a giant. I just I just love this album. Whenever I, I don't know what to listen to, there are like three or four albums that I'll just I'll just put on and uh, mm-hmm. it's either this or there's a Jets Brazil record or you know, maybe a maybe a Halloween record or something. There are like there are like four records that are my comfort albums. And this yeah. this is one of them. Um, this, go to. this is like a pure headphone record. Mm, definitely. You can listen to this on a loud sound system. You can put it on your Bluetooth speaker, but you're not really gonna gonna appreciate it unless you're just sitting there with your eyes closed, headphones on, and you just you let it kind of work its magic on you. You're gonna hear something different every time. It's a real, uh, so it, it, it's a masterpiece. This is a great record. I totally agree, and I agree with what you were saying. It's a, it's definitely a stop and listen record. Yeah. Well, I'd like to thank you, Heath, for chatting with me about this record, sharing your insights and letting us into how this record influenced your music. It's always really interesting to hear how music influences and inspires people. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on this, Jed. This is a record that means a lot to me, and uh, I'm always happy to talk about it. It's great to get your take on sort of the crafting of the guitar work on this record as a guitar player. Yeah, I don't know if any of what I said is correct. Um, it's, just, <laughs> it's the way that I hear it, and uh, I could be way off. <laughs> well, I appreciate your insights, man. It was cool uh, 
learning about some of those chords that they were using. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, like a, I'm like a power chord guy, so. <laughs> power chords have their place too. They're on this record, you know. But They're in there. They're definitely in there. They're, they're there to provide the texture too, so. Awesome. I'd like to thank Jim Atkins and Zach Lind for putting so much thought into the track by track for this album that used to be on the band's website. I definitely wish all bands would do that. Yeah, I love those uh, those behind the musics uh, where you know they'll go into track by track of of an album like Steely Dan's Asia, and they'll, yeah. they'll go into the studio with the tape or the or the Pro Tools session and isolate tracks. That's what I want. I want the mm-hmm. stem tracks from this album. Yeah, that'd be that'd be fun to listen to. One day, come on, guys. One day, someday, someday they'll release like a box set. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to thank the Internet Wayback Machine for allowing me to find that old website. It's amazing what you can uh, find on the internet. Nothing ever goes away. (laughs) Oh no, that's that's a scary concept. It's a lesson for my children. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) I'd like to thank Krista Mix from Less Than Jake for the fantastic theme music. I'd like to thank Craig for whipping up some great graphics for the show. And I'd like to thank you for listening, for saying hello on social media, but also for helping to spread us around. Don't forget to write us a review. Don't forget to say hello on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Heath, any last things to plug or promote while we have you? Uh, yeah, two things. Uh, cool. Instagram pages. Um, project that I do with my friend Dave, Heath and Dave Singh. We put up cover songs. Uh, every once in a while, we've kind of thinned out as we've gone back to work, but uh, we'll go <laughs> up there. And also check out my friend Christian Lesperance's project, Jersey Interchange, new track up every week. Uh, if you're from New Jersey or interested in the NJPP scene of the early 2000s, it's right up your alley. It's definitely comprehensive. And dude, I love the uh, I love the songs you guys are posting. You guys, I love that you do you'll do like an all song, and then you'll do like a coheed song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would. It's a good mix. Attempt a coheed song, uh, but Dave's got that range. <laughs> yeah, I was impressed. I was impressed. All right, Heath, thank you so much. All right, thank you, Jed. Have a great night. Take care, man. Take care.